The reading today is from Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verses 5 to 14. Look, I now teach you these decrees and regulations, just as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may obey them in the land you are about to enter and occupy. Obey them completely, and you will display your wisdom and intelligence among the surrounding nations. When they hear all these decrees, they will exclaim, How wise and prudent are the people of this great nation! For what great nation has a God as near to them as the Lord our God is near to us whenever we call on him? And what great nation has decrees and regulations as righteous and fair as this body of instructions that I'm giving you today? But watch out. Be careful never to forget what you yourselves have seen. Do not let these memories escape from your mind as long as you live. And be sure to pass them on to your children and grandchildren. Never forget the day when you stood before the Lord your God at Mount Sinai, where he told me, Summon the people before me, and I will personally instruct them. Then they will learn to fear me as long as they live, and they will teach their children to fear me also. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while flames from the mountain shot into the sky. The mountain was shrouded in black clouds and deep darkness. And the Lord spoke to you from the heart of the fire. You heard the sound of his words, but didn't see his form. There was only a voice. He proclaimed his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to keep, and which he wrote on two stone tablets. It was at that time that the Lord commanded me to teach you his decrees and regulations, so you would obey them in the land you were about to enter and occupy. Now, you know what they say, what does it mean when a little boy turns to his, son, his father and says, what does it mean when the preacher takes off his watch and puts it on the pulpit? And the father replies in great wisdom, nothing, son, absolutely nothing. The Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice and he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. So, something, first of all, for Father's Day. So my son Tom calls me on his phone with a video link from somewhere in the middle of one of Europe's last untamed wildernesses, the Picos de Europa, where they have northern Spain, they have bears and wolves, you know, these 
animals that remind us we're not on the top of the food chain all the time. He's cycling through the area, en route to his girlfriend in, who's staying with her family in Portugal. And he has a problem. His back wheel has come out of true on his bike. It resembles a banana. Dad, can you help? Yeah, well, I love a challenge, yeah? So on with the online tutorial. He's got a spoke spanner, that's a good start. He needs to tighten the spokes on one side of the wheel to bring it back to true. Working in groups of six, where the bend is worst, testing the tension of the spokes by giving them a ping from time to time, not over-tightening. It's, it's not an easy operation if you're separated by several hundreds of miles. Giving instructions to one's dear son on WhatsApp. It's a bit of a nightmare, actually. It's like one of those activities that they do with those um, celebrity shows, you know, celebrities I've never heard of, certain challenges. Now, I know what you're thinking. How come Tom, who has done lots of long-distance cycling, including many Audax events, if that means anything to you, how come this 40-year-old has to phone his dad for help in these circumstances. Not, by the way, for the first time. Surely, you might say, you could have taught him, Peter, some of the necessary skills when he was younger. What a dereliction of paternal duty. There's a splendid Latinate phrase, eh? Father's Day, dereliction of paternal duty. To which I would respond, I tried. Oh, oh, how I tried. When he was a teenager, every time he had a puncture or a loose bottom bracket, don't titter, it is a thing. I would put his bike up on the stand and show him patiently how to fix it. There's a key word I've used here, teenager. To do Tom justice, he freely admits now that back then he just paid me no attention. Dad, he says, it was just like you were saying, blah, 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 blah. Now, coming back to our reading, believe it or not, when our ears switch off completely from our heart and our mind, when someone is talking to us, It can happen for a lot of reasons, but one of the main reasons is that there's a conflict. We're not feeling right about each other. Oh, you might say, a teenage son and a father in conflict. Say it's not so. But let's get real. 
course it is. When we're in conflict with people, often what they say just don't make any sense. We stop listening. Now, as, as a minister, I work with a lot of, of uh, husbands and wives, of people in relationship. And very often, when they were in the worst bit of their conflict, that's why they came to me. <laughs> they just weren't listening to each other at all. They were speaking, and it was blah, 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 blah. Yeah? Is that real? Yeah? Does it ring any bells? So if, if we bear this in mind, we come to covenant, believe you me. Because let's talk about our relationship to God. In the beginning, we listened to God. In the beginning. When he walked in the garden with his dear children, his images, Adam and Eve, who he had placed in creation to rule it and bring it to glorious perfection. He talked and we listened. We talked and he listened. So that's why when the serpent says to Eve, you'll recall in Genesis 3, um, what did God say to you? And she's able to repeat it exactly and accurately. Yes, some of the fruits of the garden we can eat, almost all of them, but there is one tree that will be deadly for us. Oh, she knows. She's been listening. But once she and her husband disobey, once they, they get into conflict with God, then their ears and their hearts and minds disengage. So when their son, Cain, is warned by God against the sin crouching at his door, waiting to devour him, the sin which comes from his anger with his brother and the violence that he is ready to inflict on that brother because of it, when God warns him clearly, it's just like God saying, blah, blah, blah. You shall not covet what someone else enjoys. Blah, 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 blah. You shall do no murder. Blah, 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 blah. And Abel falls lifeless to the ground. The hands of his brother. His blood cries out to his creator, as does the blood of every victim of violence and murder since the beginning. God hears what he hears. How can he speak to us who are in conflict with him? So we will listen. Well, of course, conflict spread from that first murder. Lots of people had problems with it. And the great kings of the world had a problem with rebels 
wouldn't be taxed by them, wouldn't serve them. So they came up with a solution, a, a way of speaking to these rebels with whom they were in conflict so they would understand. They developed, and we, we have records of first of these arrangements, treaties. After the high king had usually had a conflict at war with these rebellious subjects, brought them to heel, he would make them sign a peace treaty. See, you, you make treaties, don't you? Not with your, your friends, but with your enemies, yeah? to settle the conflict. And, and so um, these treaties, and we, we know the form that they took very clearly, the ancient ones, they began with a brief summary of what had happened, make them necessary. Then a section saying that from now on, the relationship would be one of love and faithfulness, loyalty and support. And then the meat of the treaty, a long list of specific things the parties had to do. And then the gods would be invoked as witnesses. And as those who, if either side broke the treaty, would, would curse them. And bless them if they kept the treaty. Scholars have discovered excellent examples of such treaties from the Hittite Empire, which flourished in what is now Turkey around 1400 years before Christ. Another great example is generally dated somewhat later. I won't bore you with the scholarly dispute of how much later. It takes the form of the book that you are studying at the moment as a church. The book of Deuteronomy. For the entire book follows closely the pattern of such an ancient treaty. In overall structure and in detail. It takes the form of an ancient treaty. A treaty made by the king of kings with his oh-so-often rebellious people with whom he was in conflict so often. So he could make them listen. Conflict is a treaty which, as a covenant is... the. the the word used usually in scripture, a covenant, is the word used in our English translations for the Hebrew word berit. But treaty would be a better rendering, actually. Whenever you see the word covenant in scripture, if you mentally retranslate it as treaty, you will not go far wrong. And of course, we make treaties not with our friends but with our enemies, or our potential enemies, where there is a potential conflict, to end it and resolve it, so we can speak to one another in ways that we will understand and listen. Just so it is with the divine covenant, the divine treaty God makes with us. Here are words we can understand, we must understand, we must listen to.
Harsh, you may say. Really? Harsh, isn't it? Does it have to be this way? Well, of course, God would, I'm sure, have preferred that we had listened without any need for such a harsh treaty. But faced with our rebellion, our refusal to listen to his gracious, merciful, loving voice, he adopted this crude instrument of ancient power politics. But he turns it on his head. He turns it on its head. Where it, the originals were all about these high kings bringing everybody into line and punishing them if they didn't come into line. God takes the punishment upon himself for breaches of these treaties. Even in the, the very first covenant, the very first treaty mentioned in Scripture, in Genesis 9, we can see this. You'll recall that when God makes that first treaty, after the great flood, a rainbow appears in the sky. Ancient readers would have got the point straight away because in, often the kings who gave treaties would put up pictures everywhere, stone statues and uh, hewn reliefs, showing them, giving their treaty, holding a great war bow towards their defeated enemies. You've had this, and it has brought you to kneel before me to receive this treaty from my hands. Break it, and you'll get it again. That was the message of the bow held by the high king above his groveling subjects. But the bow in the sky in Genesis 9 is not a threat. It is a promise. A promise from God that no matter what happens again, there will be no great flood, no second flood. Seed time and harvest will endure as long as the earth endures. That's what the bow means. It's been reinterpreted in a loving, generous, compassionate way. Even more clearly in Genesis 15, when God makes his covenant with Abraham, this insignificant man from an insignificant tribe, he has chosen to make his ways known through. When he chooses this person and makes a covenant with him, he does so in a really peculiar way. Abraham is instructed to sacrifice animals, cut them in half, and then, as it were, put them up, lining a pathway. Now, once again, ancient readers would immediately have got the point, because this was a part of a covenant ceremony, a treaty ceremony, where both parties would walk through the divided animals and say... If we break this treaty, may we suffer the same fate as these animals. May these curses fall upon us if we break the treaty. Death and division. Abraham is not forced to walk through by God. Instead, in the deep darkness, a firepot 
and a flaming torch pass through, symbolizing that God himself alone is going to take any penalties that fall upon a party who breaks the treaty. He alone will bear the penalty should the covenant be broken by either side. What a prophecy of the great new covenant that Jesus makes possible between us and God. Building on all the treaties that have gone before, God has come in human flesh to our earth to join himself with his people in a new and gracious way. In a treaty in which all threat of punishment is removed from those who join it. Rebels though we are, all the penalties for its breach have already fallen upon God himself in the person of Jesus. This new and gracious covenant which interprets and follows from all the ones before is underpinned and guaranteed by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is the treaty which alone can end the rebellion of sinners, of every son of Adam and daughter of Eve, and bring them into a loving and faithful relationship with a gracious and merciful God, which can end the conflict and open our ears so we can hear. Who is this God with whom we have to deal? What is he saying to us? He longs to speak to us a word of love and mercy and forgiveness. That above all. Yet he is also a a holy God who yearns to see right prevail. That is what the scriptures mean when they speak of the wrath of God. Not God having a hissy fit and losing his temper. No, God's wrath is his passionate desire to see righteousness prevail. The fire that burns in the heart of any righteous judge to see justice done. That's his wrath. He does not lose his temper. But how, how he longs to see his children loving one another and treating each other with righteousness and treating the planet with care and compassion. So God's words are both compassionate and challenging. And we can find both, actually, both the challenge and the compassion hard to bear, depending where we are. 
In fact, sometimes they just seem to us nonsensical words. Allah, 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 Allah. It may be we don't want to hear his challenge to our selfishness, our lusts, our violence and anger. We want to tell ourselves we're right and he's wrong. And yet at other times we are so aware of our unloveliness, of the sin and injustice and anger and violence in our lives that we cannot believe he would love us. Both the words that tell us that we need to listen to commands given for our good to guide us on the way and the words of comfort and love both can sound to us like nonsense no matter how clear they are. Which is why he has spoken to us in this language. We can understand in words that stand forever. Above all, when when life is hard, when, when we yearn for a word that will transform our pain and suffering and show us there is some meaning and purpose to it all. Then the words of the eternal covenant are a rock. Indeed, sometimes it is only when when life is hard and only then that we can discover how these words can transform us if we hear them. As C.S. Lewis has pointed out, sometimes it is only when our lives are filled with pain that God can get through to us. As Lewis writes, we can ignore even pleasure. Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, he goes on. Speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Which is why the covenant is given to us in pain and suffering on the cross of Jesus and often becomes alive to us only when we are in pain and conflict caused by our own selfishness and anger. Whatever our circumstances this morning, are we, are you, and God, am I listening? Final word. Was that bent wheel ever trued on that remote road in Spain? Well, yes, but not by video conferencing. I know they're great for prayer meetings, but they have their limits, these things. Another cyclist, the first Tom had seen for many days. And here, might I just interject, he's not a believer, he doesn't pray himself, nor is his dear Portuguese partner. But she has often said, Tom 
you, you've got to thank God your mum prays a lot and your father occasionally because that's the only reason you've managed to get so far in life. Anyway, this cycle is passed by and seeing him struggling, no, seeing us struggling, as it were, linked by the magic of technology, asked if he could help. And Ramon happened to be a professional bike mechanic. In fact, he'd actually worked with the Spanish national cycling team. So a few quick tweaks of the spoke spanner, and Tom was good to go. So God sent his son. He sent someone. His son. His only dear son. Didn't come to us in a video conferencing. The father sent his son. Jesus the Christ. To fulfill the covenant. So we do not need to fulfill its terms. But only to enjoy its benefits. And bring a twisted world. A bent and broken world back to true 